Hello, and welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. Welcome to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast, and we are welcoming Etel Higone, Senior Campaign Director of Mighty Earth, based in North America. Thank you for being here. It's such a pleasure to be there with you. Yes. So I first met you in a recent online group uh, webinar uh, focused on issues of COVID and environment. Um, and I was really, I remember I had to ping you immediately because uh, when, you were, when you were talking, I was really fascinated with the topics that you were bringing up and then learning about the work you were doing that you do with uh, Mighty Earth and was very happy to pick up on dialogue with you via email leading to this podcast talk now. Uh, so to start off with, I guess we could just go right, right in and hear about the work you do with Mighty Earth to get an introduction. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on with you and your listeners. Um, so Mighty Earth's an environmental organization. We focus mostly on trying to break the link between deforestation and industrial agriculture. So that means that we look a lot at palm oil, which is very closely tied to deforestation, but also beef, which is a major driver of deforestation worldwide, and soy. And soy is a driver for deforestation that winds up in your meat, actually. Most people think of soy going into tofu or soy milk, but um, the truth is three quarters of the world's soy winds up in animal feed. And we also have a campaign to try and end deforestation in cocoa and a campaign to end deforestation in the rubber industry. All those commodities, all those forms of commodity agriculture are often inextricably intertwined with really destructive ways of treating Mother Earth. And we try to unpack that and help these industries free themselves from the shackles of their bad old ways of doing things and help them become their best self and to end deforestation in all their practices, as well as human rights violations, because often there's both um, things that are harming the planet and things that are harming people. That's, a, this is an incredible lineup. It's, it's also overwhelming to think about all, all of these issues that, that are tied into um, deforestation. So I do wanna ask, one critical question, um, but first I would like to know when Mighty Earth was founded uh, to it's get an idea. very new organization. Very, okay. We're just fresh out the gate. We're like a little baby organization. Yeah. We're about four years old. Okay. Um, you know, most of us have many years of experience in the same space. A lot of us are former Greenpeace. We have people who were um, previously very active with shareholder activism or um, we have a former anti-corruption commissioner on our team as well. This brings this whole wealth of expertise around corruption and transparency and traceability. Um, we've got people from corporate accountability uh, space. Um, but yeah, we're only four years old. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, I've been spending time on your website and there's quite a, quite a team there. And again, we're a very active, very <laughs> active team and a lot of issues, a lot of really huge these are huge issues um so the critical question i had when you were listing all of the uh, issues you work with with deforestation is 
I know we don't have really space in one podcast dialogue to address all this, but right out the gate, what are some of the major challenges to ending deforestation for, for several of these issues? What are like right out the gate, some of the... Well, you can think of it in a kind of tragic financial way. Um, a lot of times the cheapest stuff is produced with slave labor because slave labor is free. And that's the reason why a lot of people use child labor as well, because child labor is pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. um, and if you make products with that kind of labor, it lowers the cost of your products, right? And similarly, if you are able to trash large swaths of virgin rainforest, maybe with just a bribe or a small fine, because often there isn't really a government system set up to properly penalize people for destroying the rainforest, sometimes even governments encourage people to destroy rainforests, then that makes it much cheaper to grow your commodity with deforestation than to be super careful and responsible and go around you know, monitoring and checking with satellite maps every time you purchase land to make sure that there's no forest there or if there is forest on that land, you protect it. Um, at least that's the short-term calculus. In the long run, of course, it's much more financially viable to operate sustainably, even if you don't care about the planet or human rights. In the long run, it's much more viable. Why? Because forests are rain machines. So if you cut down all the forests, you can dramatically alter the microclimate as well as the macroclimate, which is climate change. You can really um, push the local rainfall systems into wildly different patterns that are very disruptive for your supply chain. And then that messes up your whole, you know, uh, corporate business model. So right. actually in the, even in the medium term, but certainly in the long term, deforestation is, is very bad for business, but in the short run, it can seem cheaper. And so right. that is something that makes it attractive. And, you know, I got to say a lot of people also up until recently didn't fully understand how bad it was to embrace deforestation in their agricultural practices. In the last decade, it's become so well-documented that I think it's harder to hide behind this veil of, of ignorance, but certainly um, there's still some folks that don't really believe the science. Right. Does Mighty Earth focus on specific regions or it's, I mean, I know your work is global, but are there like hotspots that you're working and I imagine they're shifting? Yeah, we do focus a lot on the tropics. Um, you know, tropical rainforests are immensely important for the planet in terms of biodiversity and carbon sequestration. They're really the lungs of the planet. It's not to say that forests in North America and Russia and Canada are not important. Of course, all forests are precious. We need all the forests that we've got, um, especially now uh, that we're facing really cataclysmic runaway climate change. But we, we focus at Mighty Earth mostly on tropical rainforests because they're especially precious and important. Um, so a lot of work in the Amazon and in uh, the Congo Basin region, uh, West African forests, and of course, in the great forests of Indonesia um, and the Mekong. And so, you know, it's interesting because where our, our investigations, our satellite mapping, even some of our undercover investigations, we do a lot of that as well, you know, with photos and videos and drones, that tends to be in the tropics, but overwhelmingly the companies that we're fighting 
that are responsible for or that are buying the deforestation. They tend to be in um, the US, in Europe, um, sometimes in Korea, in Japan. So actually the, the, loca the location of who is organizing the problem is different from where the problem is manifesting. Right. Which brings me to another question. I have wanted to at Pacific Roots Magazine really get into uh, the palm oil issue. Um, part of part of what I do at Pacific Roots Magazine is I'm learning for myself and then trying to share it at the platform. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you, when we go to the grocery store, you know, where we live in the U.S. and here in Sweden, you pick up um, food and often you can easily find palm oil and so many things. And so reading about um, great environmental damage with palm oil, it's so overwhelming sometimes as an individual consumer. Because you're like, how do I have to be so cautious to avoid it? And, and uh, you start seeing sometimes sustainably produce um, palm oil, but it, it really requires a lot of research. And um, I'm curious from like an individual consumer perspective, how we can help change our habits. I understand this is a systemic problem and it requires organizations like yours that are looking to really cut down the industry completely. But as an individual consumer, how can we also raise our awareness and sort of change our behaviors? Um, well, that's a fantastic question. I mean, I'll tell you something crazy that most people don't know, which is that the average supermarket shopping experience, when you leave the supermarket, 50% of what you've got in your bags has palm oil in it. Oh my gosh. What? Palm oil is in everything, Anika. It's yeah. in your shampoo. It's in your lipstick. It's in the ink and printing. It's in detergent. It's in chocolate. It's in wow. snacks. It's in processed foods. Palm oil is everywhere. Right. And I think what's important is that there's good palm oil and bad palm oil. Mm -hmm. Um, and everything in between. And as a shopper, you might not have the power to choose by looking at what you're buying in the supermarket because there's 50 different ways of hiding your palm oil with names that don't sound like palm oil. Yeah. Crazy scientific names that, you know, nobody's going to memorize 50 different variations of right. that. Yeah. And so in a weird way, if you want to be engaged, of course you can look at the bottles and the products that you buy. And you can try to buy mindfully. You can try to buy something that is labeled uh, sustainable palm oil or palm oil free. But there's so much doubt and confusion and obfuscation and mendacity. And the labeling is such a giant mess right. <laughs> that the best thing active, engaged people who care can do is to sign petitions and join citizen movements to end deforestation in palm oil overall. And actually, you know, right now in the age of COVID, there's something especially important that people can do that's coming up. Because we talk about deforestation for palm oil, but a lot of people don't know there's forest burning for palm oil. It's cheaper to burn the forest than to bulldoze it. If you bulldoze, you gotta bring the equipment, you gotta hire the people. Mm -hmm. Lighting a match is just so much easier. Mm -hmm. And so one of the most pernicious ways that the palm oil industry is destroying forests is by burning vast swaths of Indonesian forests that are often in peat. And peat is very carbon rich. Mm -hmm. And that sends plumes of smoke out. 
And guess what it does? It hurts people's lungs. And guess what COVID-19 does? It hurts people's lungs. Mm -hmm. If you combine the comorbidity of people inhaling smoke from forest fires, these PM 2.5, with the comorbidity of COVID-19 respiratory ailments, mm -hmm. in a place like Indonesia or Malaysia where the health system is weak, you're looking at a lot of deaths and hospitalizations mm -hmm. that will crash a vulnerable health system. So what people can do right now mm -hmm. is actually to stand up for forest fire-free palm oil, not just deforestation-free, but fire-free. Do you see a possibility where we can produce also all of our, so many of our goods without the use of palm oil? Are you seeing that as well in your work with um, some companies? Are they innovating ways to be less dependent on palm oil? Some companies are innovating ways to be less dependent on palm oil, that's for sure. And there's also been a sea change in the last decade of companies being willing to give up deforestation and burning. And so what we now see is that the bulk of the market has shifted to at least commitments on paper and efforts to monitor fire and deforestation in their palm oil supply chain. Mm -hmm. But we still have something that we call the leakage market. You could think of it as the dark market, the irresponsible, harmful palm oil, where these rogue actors are burning and deforesting. And by the way, they also abuse indigenous rights. Mm -hmm. They tend to um, spark a lot of community uh, explosive in community conflicts because they're land grabbing in ways that split communities. Um, so there's this human impact on indigenous people and forest dependent communities, as well as the environmental impact of forest right. fires and deforestation. And those rogue actors tend to sell to um, uh, Asian markets, China, India, but also Middle Eastern markets. Of course, you, you still see some of the mainstream um, industry, just not really living up to their promises on paper. And so it's kind of a paper tiger. But I think the most preoccupying problem now is this leakage market, as well as, I guess you could say, the lack of implementation or the shoddy implementation. Mm -hmm. So that's really the heart of where things are at in palm oil. If people want to make a difference in the heart of the matter, it's triggering a switch. <clears throat> Maybe that switch. Maybe I can get your advice after the, the podcast and get some good petition links that you recommend that I can post oh, yeah. along with. Uh, that would be wonderful. So in addition uh, yeah. to the human impact and the environmental impact, well, humans are part of the environment, but also the, the impact on animals. I can't even fathom if you're burning huge swaths. Many of us who've taken a peek at the issue, of course, we know about the orangutan, orangutans, but, but it's like species lost. Oh, it's a Just mass extinction. A mass extinction. Well, you know, they really documented um, species loss in Australia in the recent forest fires. And, you know, I think that's a testament to the fact that there's a very robust um, and well-financed scientific community and environmental community in Australia compared to sort of more remote rural parts of Indonesia, like Papua, where there's just, you know, isn't that same... Um, sort of well-funded science to document. But we know for sure, Annika, that there are thousands of animals, possibly hundreds of thousands or millions of animals being killed mm -hmm. um, from forest fires and deforestation. We know that we're pushing species to extinction and it's killing people too. You know, in 2015, it was a really bad year for fire in Indonesia, it was a dry year. Mm -hmm. 
the forest fires in Indonesia um, caused 100,300 premature deaths of people just from PM 2.5 inhalation. And not only did about 100,000 people prematurely die, but millions of people were sickened. So, you know, you could say, oh, well, I don't care about the environment or animal welfare. Fine, fair enough, but then care about people. Because, you know, we are killing animals, we're making them sick, and we're killing people. And, you know, it's not only palm oil, the beef and the soy industry over in Latin America, because palm oil is very concentrated in Southeast Asia, Mm -hmm. but beef and soy are very concentrated in Latin America, in the Amazon Mm -hmm. and the Cerrado, they also are responsible for massive amounts of forest fires. Right. So we can move on to the soy issue, right? As many people think it's like, oh, tofu, this and that, but it's, as you mentioned, three-fourths is going to animal feed. That's right. Mostly it goes to um, birds, like chickens, Mm -hmm. uh, and of course also ducks and turkeys, but also Mm -hmm. a lot goes to feed baby piggies um, and a little bit to the cattle industry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, soy seems like a kind of vegetarian vegan thing, but it's right. actually a carnivore thing. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that, um, you know, we saw last summer, I'm sure a lot of your listeners were aware, uh, we saw last summer these catastrophic fires in the Amazon. And not only in the Amazon, but in this um, beautiful savanna, which is called the Cerrado, which is a source of many of the rivers of Brazil. Um, so even if you don't care about the rivers, you should care about the hydroelectricity because a lot of Brazil's yeah. electricity comes from the rivers that are mm. born in the Cerrado in this beautiful savanna. It's also home to just amazing wildlife. Um, and yeah, it, it's being deforested and burned at a very rapid clip. And already last summer when the fires were so bad, a lot of people got sick mm. in the cities that are downwind. It was really bad. There's an uptick in hospitalizations. Mm-hmm. So I just keep wondering and thinking, you know, my husband's Brazilian, my in-laws are all in Brazil. What is going to happen to my Brazilian family and all other Brazilians when the smoke hits mm-hmm. from the fires, which happen every summer now, especially when we have a government in Brazil that doesn't much care about fires and even incentivizes and encourages them sometimes. What's going to happen when we mix fires with COVID-19? Mm-hmm. I just had COVID-19. My husband and I were both sick. It was right. so hard to breathe. How are you going to mix that kind of respiratory ailment with the comorbidity of the smoke from the forest fires? I think what we need is a fire-free summer. That this Earth Day, we all pledge, let's have a fire-free summer. No fire for beef, no fire for soy, no fire for palm oil, no fire for nothing. Just fire-free summer and save COVID victims around the world. It's not just going to hit New York. It's going to hit Sao Paulo. It's going to hit Jakarta. It's going to hit... Singapore is going to hit Kuala Lumpur. Let's save lives in these places. They have fragile health systems that are not going to be able to handle the volume of people that's going to need ventilators and ICUs. And we can save their lives by what we consume, what Mm -hmm. we eat. Yeah, that's true. That interconnectedness is um, maybe also what uh, awareness needs to build on too, because I think a lot of times us um, individual consumers, we don't realize how interconnected what we're eating here in this place is just somewhere across the planet. There's just not the knowledge because um, it takes time to learn about. We are in a about. circle of love. Right. We are in a giant global interconnected web and you can put love into that web. 
you can put compassion into your actions. It's like a butterfly flapping their wings mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. can change a galaxy somewhere else. I really believe that what you purchase, when you buy and what you eat from the heart, when you eat with a, from a place of love and compassion, you can make a difference mm -hmm. in how COVID winds up affecting a child in Kuala Lumpur. You know, maybe you just save that one kid's life. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just save one grandmother in Sao Paulo. But if you can save one person mm -hmm. in this act of love and compassion in a time of pandemic and a time of need, it's not love in a time of cholera, it's love in a time of COVID, you right. know? We can do it, we all have to do it, Annika, because I think there is no neutral space. Either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And sometimes people don't even know what the problem is, and so as soon as they no, I found overwhelmingly they want to be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Most people do care. They want to be part of the love and, and the, the ending the burning, ending the deforestation, solidarity with workers out in uh, their food supply chain. They mm -hmm. wanted to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. People just don't necessarily know. Right, right. This is not, usually this is not things most of us learn in school or even in everyday society. Um, I, I work with media, but I would say it's not even necessarily, you can pick what you're following in the media. And this is, these are really difficult issues. I love, I love your emphasis on love and that we can create a choice of love. Um, but they're also really, really heavy topics sometimes, I think, especially if you're not already ingrained with them. You're working, you and your team are working with these issues on a regular basis. Um, I think stepping into it, it's um, the analogy of kind of like the matrix, stepping into awareness sometimes can feel a bit like that. Um, and I do, wanna, I do wanna ask a question and maybe there is no good answer or a clear answer, but I like what you said about how we need a fire-free summer. And when we think about that there are organizations, groups, authorities even, who, who really are not, don't, aren't interested in that. They're interested in you know, continuing the fire system that. So sometimes it feels insurmountable that how do, we achieve, how do we achieve these things when there are authorities that are allowing these things to happen? Or, um, so I mean, I think that's, that's where your organization comes in too, the work that you do. So, um, uh, one thing people can do is also get involved at your site, correct? I was just there. Yes. People yeah, we have a, a growing uh, community of um, activists and clicktivists mm -hmm. that right. work with us. And, you know, I've got to say, um, it makes a world of difference, right? We have volunteers that have um, gone to protest and do die-ins in front mm -hmm. of the offices of companies that are responsible for deforestation and burning, and it makes a gigantic difference. That company might not even be willing to talk to you, mm -hmm. but once there's a protest, all of a sudden they answer your phone call. Oh yeah, of course we want to have that meeting with you. We're so sorry we didn't answer before. Really, it and, helps. Yeah, protest them. Absolutely, I the remember presence. vividly. Not for the the fires issue, um, not for for beef and soy and palm oil, but for our cocoa campaign. There was a company that didn't want to talk to us at all about changing their cocoa um, supply to no deforestation mm -hmm. and to all shade-grown agroforestry, you know, forest-friendly chocolate um, that's, you know, in sync with Mother Earth um, right. and with no child labor and better protections for the workers. Um, 
And then we had a, a, a wonderful sister NGO that started a petition for us. And when we hit 200,000 people, the company started calling and answering all my phone calls and wow. messages. And they began to really change. It's a testament to the fact that each and every person who signs a petition, who goes to a protest, you know, even if it's just taking a picture of yourself protesting at home and posting mm -hmm. it on the Facebook page of the company, mm -hmm. a little sign saying, you know, for fire-free summer. That is something that changes the company so much. They're afraid of consumer backlash. They right. want consumers to love them and not to drop them and go to someone else. So going to McDonald's uh, Facebook page, for example, or going to Pepsi's Facebook page, Pepsi uses a lot of palm oil um, and McDonald's uses a lot of soy and beef. And just saying, I want it to be a fire-free summer. Mm -hmm. You know, any company that you buy things from, any company you care about, that has soy or beef or palm oil, just send them a Facebook message. Mm -hmm. That's enough to really start people within the company thinking hard. Right, and I like that you highlight this. Um, it's the power of consumerism and also at, at the, you yeah. know, the platform I work on, I like to address that because I think sometimes on the individual level, it can feel like, well, what, what difference is it gonna make? But there is, uh, from the company level, they, they might not actually at heart initially care about the issue but when consumers care it's going to have an effect on That's their production. absolutely true right uh, back to when i first heard you talk in that in that one webinar i remember you were i have my notes here you are also addressing how we got to this pandemic and the links between wildlife tra trafficking and deforestation so i want to um chat about um chat a bit about that and you know you mentioned of course going from that um, you know, the meat industry also needing rethinking how that's kind of a, a cesspool for pandemics as it stands now, how we, how we are handling uh, meat production and um, limiting zoonosis. Absolutely. Well, so something that people have begun to learn because, you know, COVID-19 has thrown our society into such havoc that we've started to educate ourselves is that most epidemics and this pandemic come from something called zoonosis. Zoonosis is when an illness kind of makes a leap from animal reservoirs to human reservoirs. And about three quarters of human emerging infectious diseases come from animals. So COVID-19 apparently comes from a bat via a pangolin. Um, we're not quite sure about the pangolin part. That's the best available science that we have now. Mm -hmm. We know for sure that MERS came from dromedary camels. We know that measles and TB come from cows. We know that AIDS came from primates. And mm -hmm. SARS is quite likely to come from a civet, which is why all these civets were massacred after SARS hit. Mm -hmm. um, and Ebola was animal born. Um, obviously, swine flu comes from pigs and right. bird flu comes from birds. Right. So, so the point is, zoonosis is what gets us sick in these really big, bad, serious epidemics and pandemics, right? Ebola, SARS, MERS, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And how is it that zoonosis happens? Zoonosis happens when you put animals and people into close contact. One of the most dangerous ways that that happens is through wildlife trafficking. When you rip wild animals out of the forest where they've got their own little diseases that you never would see or smell or touch or hear anything mm -hmm. about, and you bring them into close contact with people, 
for example, in China's wet markets. Mm -hmm. um, but even, you know, wildlife trafficking is all over the world, including right. in the United States, in Amazon region. There's a yeah. lot of unknown strange diseases that animals have in the Amazon region. When we traffic wildlife and bring it into close contact with humans, especially the moment when you kill the animal, when there's blood and guts and saliva and mm -hmm. stuff, and you're really touching the animal, that is when you kind of maximize the chance of having a disease spring from that animal host to humans. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, besides wildlife trafficking, is deforestation. When you destroy animal habitats, animals like bats will flock out of where they used to live without bothering you or seeing you, mm -hmm. and they will come almost like refugees. Think of them as refugees, mm -hmm. winding up desperate, homeless, and hungry on your doorstep. Yeah. That means you're just rolling the dice. It's like playing Russian roulette mm -hmm. because you're just multiplying the number of human-animal interactions until finally one mutation of the virus figures out how to hop mm -hmm. to humans. So deforestation drives these waves of animal-human interaction, just like wildlife trafficking. And that is how we wound up with COVID-19. And we knew it because that's how we wound up with SARS. And we knew it because that's how we wound up with Ebola. But we don't seem to be able to learn the best way to pandemic-proof human society is to ban all wildlife trafficking and to dramatically cut back on deforestation. Mm -hmm. These are two things that might not help save lives the way ventilators and ICU beds and doctors are gonna save lives right now, mm -hmm. but they will save lives later. This disease, COVID-19, it has a high mortality rate compared to a flu, but it has a low mortality rate compared to Ebola. Mm -hmm. So let's not keep rolling the dice until the next Ebola hits. Right. You know, if we want to pandemic-proof our planet, we've got to stop deforestation. We've got to stop wildlife trafficking. You know, this is for our kids and our grandkids. Yeah. And for the stability of our society, I mean, look at how this is unprecedented. What, look at what this has caused worldwide, the lockdowns and uh, how we're going to recover for this is going to be just, it's going to be bizarre, you know, and, and so for the stability of human society too, these are issues that. Um, and the cost, yeah. you know, when Ebola and SARS hit, there's so many scientists mm -hmm. and epidemiologists that kept saying, stop wildlife trafficking, stop deforestation. You know, you go find any epidemiologist, this is exactly what they will tell you. And everyone said, oh, that's very expensive. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive to crack down on poaching and wildlife trafficking. Right. And it's really hard and expensive to end all deforestation. That's crazy. Well, guess what? It would, it would have been a lot cheaper to exactly. do that. It would have been, yeah. Than to do what we're doing now, which is this planetary havoc on our economy. And, you know, there's actually something else that is important besides thinking about wildlife with these emerging new diseases that we don't have any protection against that hit us like SARS and Ebola and COVID-19. There's something else, which is swine flu and bird flu. You know, the way we have structured our animal farming operations, especially in large factory farms, it is again, just rolling the dice. It's asking for wild, endless mutations of swine flu and bird flu. And eventually 
one mutation is going to emerge that isn't just going to be animal to animal transmissible. It's going to be animal to human transmissible. We are really playing with fire when we have the meat industry structured the way it is. You know how we're all safer when we do social distancing? Well, that's true for animals too. If you have them packed together in these filthy, unhygienic conditions with feces and excrement mixed with secretions, and you know, it is it is a recipe for disaster when you have social distancing amongst animals, otherwise known, you know, as pasture raised and sustainable ethical animal production, Mm -hmm. animal husbandry, you lower the risks, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're really careful and cautious about slaughtering, especially in markets. You know, I used to live in, in, in Southeast Asia. I worked for Greenpeace in Southeast Asia. I was based Mm -hmm. in Cambodia. There are these markets right next to my house in Cambodia where Mm -hmm. the birds are held live so that you can buy it. Basically show the bird you want and then they'll kill it for you. It's killed right in front of you. There's blood, there's feathers. It's all washed in these big things of water with many, many birds. It is a recipe for spreading bird flu and for making bird flu animal to animal to animal to human transmissible. We've got to use this moment when everybody is getting bailed out in exchange for improving themselves. So we have stimulus packages in order to help these industries be their best self, right? For the car industry, please make electric vehicles. For the energy industry, let's shift towards renewables. For the meat industry, if they get bailed out, they've got to find a way to pandemic proof themselves. Mm -hmm. They've got to find a way to limit the risk of us getting a worse strain of bird flu and swine flu, which already have killed a lot of people. Right. And it's, it's, I hate to be doomsday, but it's not really a matter of, of if, but when. It's just it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, but when. Right. Unless and until the meat industry changes. Right. And they can change. They can do it. Mm-hmm. We know they can do it because sometimes they have done it. Right. And so there is hope. It's not a question of being a nattering nabob of negativity. Let's think, yes, we can. Yeah. Um, does does uh, Mighty Earth work also with with meat industry issues? We so, work especially on trying to end deforestation mm-hmm. that comes into the meat industry through animal feed through soy, okay. Okay. and that's directly caused by the cattle industry right. in Latin America. Right. Um, and in general, you know, we're very supportive of the meat industry becoming more traceable, mm-hmm. more transparent, treating its workers better having better conditions. But I think, you know, just from having been sick with COVID-19 and feeling this really burning personal commitment to trying to save as many people as possible from future pandemics that might be even worse. Mm -hmm. I think we all have to take a good deep look at how to pandemic proof the meat industry. What kind of conditions can we set up you know, there's something that is kind of a disaster waiting to happen that we can still change. There's still time. It's called antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. You know, a large volume of the antibiotics used in the world go into the animal industry. We, We give animals antibiotics to fatten them up. And we often pretend it's just prophylactic to keep them from getting sick or that it's a treatment. Sometimes it is a treatment. One reason that we Um, have to treat animals for getting sick is because their conditions are so appalling, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a strong correlation between conditions being bad 
and needing to give antibiotics to animals. But be that as it may, a lot of the industry just over um, saturates the meat that they produce with antibiotics. And this is creating strains of bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics, like flesh-eating bacteria. <laughs> we have got to deal with this now. The time yeah. is now. We're in COVID-19 now. Are we going to wait until there's an antibiotic resistant strain of lethal bacteria that comes from the meat industry and hits humanity. Why would we do that? Why can't we just fix it now? I mean, I'm kind of worried that we, we are, I feel like both things are happening at once that there are people working on. Let's not, let's not wait. But then on the other hand, industries marching forward and continuing the, I mean, the operations aren't shutting down tomorrow. So I feel like both are kind of happening simultaneously. Um, so as you know, we, we spoke off record before this call, and I make sure to not present my platform as a vegan platform, right? I, I want it to be inclusive. Um, I'm a vegan myself. I have family members who eat meat, so I, I have a stake in this. I think we all do. Whether or not you're on a plant-based diet exclusively or you like to eat meat, um, pandemics affect everybody and a pandemic that emerges from factory farming system, it's not gonna care whether I you know, choose to eat a plant-based diet or not. I am also affected. So for me, I am, um, <clears throat> from a media standpoint, I like to be inclusive so that I can welcome people to the platform uh, and not have it be just exclusively for people who, who eat a certain way or have the same ethos that I do. So that's also why I was very interesting in talking with you about, about um, you know, the changes that need to be made to the meat industry. Although I would like to personally see it shut down completely, of course, all slaughterhouses closed. I know that's not gonna happen. Um, I want to be able to have discussions about reductionist methods because that's realistically how it's gonna go for many people. It's sort of saying like, I can't, this is not sustainable to have meat at three meals a day. This is how we keep factory farms open. It's this high demand for cheap meat. And this is what really needs to change. Um, and I like how you mentioned with some earlier examples of, of things you were talking about that even if you don't care about the environment or, or about animal welfare, like think about like some people might be, have the switch when they think about human health, but we're reaching the point too where you, you, we can't afford to not care because it's, it's, affecting, it's affecting us. So maybe people don't care about bat health or homes for bats, but with the pandemics, we're showing, how, yeah, that interconnectivity and that we can't afford anymore to not care because it's going to come to our doorstep. It's, you know, the cycle. So I do That's really, right. yeah, I really appreciate right. thoughts on, on how the meat industry needs to change again, because it's not going to end tomorrow, even for those of us who would like to see that happen. It's not, but something has to change. Well, your point about interconnectedness is, is so fundamental. You know, the pandemic is teaching us a lot of things. It's teaching us that we are only as healthy as the sickest amongst us. Mm -hmm. If they're sick, we get sick. That is true whether you're talking about a cash, cashier register um, in your grocery store, or it's true if you're talking about Zimbabwe right. versus the United States or Sweden. We are all connected. Right. That's what I meant about we're in a web and it has to be a web of love. It has to be a web of caring. You know, whether you're a vegan or a vegetarian or a meat eater, you don't want to be hit with the strain of right. anti 
microbial no. resistant really flesh don't. eating bacteria. <laughs> well, and the truth, you know, I mean, the, the, the science shows that we already have these things emerging. So the, it's not about a future scenario. Science is very clear. We already have antimicrobial resistance that's extremely severe that's developing all over the world. The only question is, can we turn that back mm -hmm. and reverse course so that we avert a kind of pandemic from that, epidemics from that? That's the question. So it's not about whether, you know, people are going to die from COVID in Indonesia and Brazil. It's about, can we minimize the amount of deaths and suffering by having a fire-free summer? It's not about whether we're going to have antimicrobial resistance emerging from the meat industry that's saturated with antibiotics that the animals shouldn't be eating and don't really need. It's about, can we change that and slowly diminish it and turn that cargo ship around? Mm -hmm. It's steaming full ahead for pandemic port. Can yeah. we turn around and go to the yeah. port of safety? You know, it's not about whether we are going to experience swine flu and bird flu. We already have mm -hmm. swine flu yeah. and bird flu. It's about, can we minimize the risks mm -hmm. by changing the meat industry right. now? You know, I think one thing the pandemic has also really taught us is that science is important. We've got to trust scientists and be data-driven. And all the best scientists are now feeding into this thing called One Health, it's exactly what you were talking about. One health, the health of the planet, the health of animals, and the health of humans are all interconnected. So, so you've mentioned, uh, and I knew this before we started recording, but you are recovering. You are almost recovered. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, if you don't mind sharing a little bit, you, you're, uh, the, when I first met you on that one uh, webinar, you were, I could hear it in your voice, um, and you, you, you let everybody know that you, you had COVID, but so how has the experience been, and how are you feeling now? You seem well, great. Well, it's been a real eye-opener. Mm -hmm. You know, my husband and I both had severe fever and a cough and a sore throat, and since I'd also lived in Southeast Asia, and I'd been in Southeast Asia during the fire season when the smog was so bad, and I got asthma, and I got sick at that time, it just put two and two together. It just suddenly, I was lying in bed feeling miserable and sorry for myself. And then all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, what about all my friends, mm -hmm. these people that I love living back where I used to live, what are they going to do this summer? Mm -hmm. And yeah, so this personal experience of the cough and the trouble breathing and the sore throat really brought this home to me in a very personal way. Um, but then after the cough and the, the sore throat and the fever subsided, I developed a heart problem. Um, and had to go to the hospital here. And, you know, it was just really heart-wrenching to see this hospital totally slammed, overwhelmed, just, just filled with people. I was very moved and touched. Was a lot of the, pe the people that I was interfacing with on the medical staff actually had come out of retirement oh, wow. and were there at great risk to themselves, right. you know, and they were so, so lovely. They gave us so much love and attention and care. I could never give enough gratitude back to them. Yeah. And so, you know, part of what I want to do is give gratitude and help to health professionals around the world. How can we flatten the curve around the world? Mm -hmm. And that's partly why I'm so 
obsessed with this fire-free summer, yeah. you know, to help, you know, ER doctors in Jakarta and, and cardiac uh, specialists in, 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 in Sao Paulo. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how, how can we save medical professionals from the heart-wrenching, agonizing decision of having a triage who lives and who dies because there aren't enough ventilators. Mm -hmm. I felt really lucky that I didn't need a ventilator, but you know, it was just awful to see all these people in the hospital who are alone and some of them were really old and I just wanted to hug all of them and I couldn't hug them. That's mm -hmm. the whole point. Right, um, right. It was very emotionally, you know, I, 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 before working in the environment, I used to work in human rights and I, okay. I did a lot of work on war crimes. I worked in Iraq. I worked in Sierra Leone. I've seen a lot of tough stuff. Yep. This is right up there in the, the saddest, toughest things I've ever seen. Right. I think it's going to stay with me forever. It was really sad. I can feel, yeah, you're, you're in New York City. You're in New York City. We're in New York, yeah. Right. So New things are, what's the current... Um, it's the current situation. Things are still, are lockdown sort of lifting up a little bit or? There's still a lockdown. Yeah. Um, there's been this wonderful outpouring at 7 p.m. Every 7 p.m. people get on their balconies and windows and cheer mm -hmm. and bang pots and pans. Right. I couldn't cheer because my, my, my chest is not great, but I've been diligently banging my pots and pans for the health workers and to thank everybody who's on the front lines, you know, delivery people and police and firemen and folks right. that keep showing up to work at the grocery stores, um, all the essential workers. So there's been this big outpouring of love in New York. I've really seen that. And I think that in New York and in a lot of places in America, there's been a commitment to trying to figure out how to make sure that the bailout is fair and brings us to more equity and more justice and more compassion. Push the reset button towards a better path. And I think I've been just touched by how many petitions I've seen and messages about like helping the hungry and making sure everybody gets sick leave. And there's an outpouring of citizen activism that I see that one the cockles of my heart even when my heart is misbehaving with this right. it makes me feel so encouraged and joyful um, and I think that you know we can run two races at the really be our best selves in this hour of need right I'm gonna have to this is your message is tremendous my internet connection is becoming unstable so I'm going to Thank you very much for your time. And it was my pleasure. You look wonderful, and I'm so happy for your recovery. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you for everything you've shared. The last few minutes there might be, might be a little bit spotty for our listeners um, because my, I'm in a semi-public place here, but it was really wonderful to talk with you. And um, again, it you look wonderful. It was great to share. It was yeah. great to share this moment of togetherness. Absolutely. And I look forward to sharing when I put up the post, I'll include some links and I'll, after, you know, we end off here, um, discuss with you some uh, good petitions that people can look at too. And of course, the Mighty Earth uh, website, will be sharing that as well. 
I just wanted to say, I feel like even though you're in Sweden and I'm in New York, I, I feel like I connected with a kindred spirit now. And I think probably a lot of your listeners are also kindred spirits. So I'm Absolutely. sending them all good vibes and I hope they stay safe and take care. Thank you so much. That means so much. Thank you. And we will be Thank in touch. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Pacific Roots Magazine podcast. Visit us online at pacificrootsmagazine.com.